Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And good morning. Welcome to this special edition of Healthy Matters. We're going to continue on with our special I'm Listening. And here again is your host, Dr. David Hilden. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, Denny. Good morning, one and all. We indeed are going to do a Minnesota-based I'm Listening um, hour today. We are talking about uh, mental health issues. Primarily, we're talking about suicide prevention. And uh, um, it's a national conversation that's been going on um, uh, on airwaves across the country, including right here on WCCO. And so welcome to our hour about I'm listening and we're going to talk about suicide prevention. We thought, um, and, and I mentioned it to those of you who maybe have been listening the last couple of weeks, this could be one of the more important shows we do um, of this year or ever. And uh, to help me out with that, uh, I brought in a guest. So we have Brent Walden. Dr. Walden is the chief clinical psychologist at Hennepin Healthcare, um, uh, where I work. And first of all, Dr. Walden, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on the show, Dr. Holden. So we're going to talk a, a little bit in the coming hour or a lot um, about um, uh, the nuances of, of uh, suicide and what causes it and what um, – how we could, importantly, how we could prevent it. But before we do that, I just want our listeners to get to know you a little bit. Uh, um, you are the chief clinical psychologist at Hennepin Healthcare. What That's does, right. What does that job do? So that job involves administrative oversight of the psychology division, which is a part of our psychiatry department at Hennepin, one of our largest departments. Uh, we help so many patients every day um, in psychiatry. Uh, In addition to administrative oversight of psychology, I also manage the partial hospital program, which is one of our intensive outpatient programs within psychiatry. We help people avoid a psychiatric admission when possible uh, when individuals are experiencing a mental health crisis. And I also provide clinical services in the partial hospital program, as well as the adult psychiatry clinic, uh, both individual psychotherapy and group psychotherapy. So... I'd like to talk a lot more about you. You've got about. I, I'm starting to jot notes to myself because there's a lot already I want to ask you more about. But I'm going to stick to um, what does uh, um, about the one of the things you said. A psychologist. You do psychotherapy. Tell listeners if you could what psychotherapy is used for. So psychotherapy or talk therapy is used to treat mental health conditions and other problems. People come to psychotherapy or talk therapy when they're struggling with depression, anxiety, other mental health conditions. People also seek psychotherapy when they're feeling stuck in life, when they are facing a big decision, they're not sure what to do, perhaps about a relationship struggle, maybe a job change. So sometimes people are coming into psychotherapy with life challenges that they're just simply not sure how to, how to work out on their own. It, it strikes me hearing you say that, that almost everybody gets stuck in life sometimes. Absolutely. So we should all at some point come and see you. I so think I'm I'm chuckling, but but I, I, that's a, I'm serious. I think there's some truth to that, and, and I think that when people come to psychotherapy, many times they're pushing through some stigma or at least some reluctance to to make their way into the office to talk with someone they don't know yet. 
And what I hear from people is that they are so glad they did that. They're so glad they pushed through and despite discomfort, came in and talked about what they're struggling with. And by and large, people benefit from psychotherapy. We know this from research, and I know this from meeting with people myself and seeing people grow and change and move into recovery. Of course, not everyone responds to psychotherapy or talk therapy or any intervention for that matter. Um, But most people do experience benefit from psychotherapy. So this hour is part of a, a larger conversation called I'm Listening about mental health and specifically suicide. So it sounds like um, that's exactly what you do every day is that you're basically listening to people um, talk to you. Uh, why would someone come to a professional such as yourself as opposed to going to their Aunt Martha or their coworker or their spouse? You know, when does it become... Um, beneficial. What does the science tell us that it becomes beneficial to come see a professional? I think what the science tells us and what people tell me as well is that when there are problems that they don't feel comfortable talking with another person about, or they realize the other people they are talking about their problems with don't have the ability to help them out of their problems, don't have the expertise or skill to, to provide a treatment that we know is effective, more effective than simply talking about things. Um, that's when I think it makes sense for people to come in for psychotherapy. I think if someone is is wondering whether psychotherapy could benefit them, they could certainly come in and talk about doing psychotherapy. You don't have to commit to doing psychotherapy to come in and have a conversation about psychotherapy. So a session or two could help a person sort out whether psychotherapy is the right next step for them. That's a great point. You know, you, you, you maybe aren't familiar with it and you don't even know where to begin. You can make a session or two and just and get the and get it started. I think a lot of people probably think of um, kind of maybe people of a certain age remember like the old Bob Newhart show and they're, uh, they're, they, or they, they think of a, a, a shrink or something, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, some of those old terms that are, aren't really probably terribly helpful. But they have this image of their head is that these are people who really have way more significant problems that I have. They put you on a couch and they immediately make you start talking about your childhood. Is that how it is? That's a very common perception. And yeah. I think in some cases, that type of psychotherapy is what folks are looking for. And, and that type of psychotherapy does exist. Mm-hmm. I am much more familiar with and trained in behavioral approaches, cognitive behavioral approaches that really focus on helping engage the patient in a more active therapy where from the beginning, the patient is figuring out what specific changes they need to start making, what skills they need to develop, maybe learn about for the first time that will help them make those changes. And therapy is much more time-limited than I think what a lot of people think about, uh, particularly seeing psychotherapy depicted in the media, on television, and movies. Let's talk a little bit specifically about suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's going to be our main focus. And for listeners, um, you are welcome to call or um, call our line and, and join this conversation um, or uh, text your questions or your comments um, to us. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about suicide. Is this, uh, first of all, a little bit of basic 101, a little bit of the basics. How common is it? Um, What causes it? Things like that, if you could. uh. Sure, sure. Suicide is very complex, and it's not possible to give a short answer to that question. It's Mm -hmm. a really good question, and I think that's why one of the reasons why we have an hour set aside today to talk about this very complex Mm -hmm. public health issue. Um, Suicide is preventable. We have strategies that work, that research uh, have shown are effective. And so it's really important for the public to be aware, for everyone to know that they have a part to play in suicide prevention. 
Um, myself as a psychologist, I have a part to play that's different than what the public can can do. But the public is really essential in helping identify individuals who are in need of treatment, who are in need of, of additional help. Um, and I'd like to talk at some point today about some of the steps that people who are listening today can take to, to help. I think we're going to probably um, talk about that a lot. And mm-hmm. so let's start right now. If something is preventable, um, you said it's preventable. That m- m- must mean that we have some idea of the causes or the risks that um, for suicide. We absolutely do. And so what we know is that there are a number of risk factors that elevate a person's risk at least statistically. So we know that individuals with a mental health condition like depression are at elevated risk. Uh, We know that individuals with other mental health conditions like anxiety, like post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder, these individuals are all at elevated risk. Now, anytime we talk about risk factors for suicide, it's important to be mindful that most individuals with risk factors for suicide will actually not go on to attempt suicide. Um, so suicide is is very difficult to predict, and it's important to know about risk factors. And I'll talk a little bit more about risk factors. And then I'd like us, too, to talk about warning signs, but but more risk factors. So other factors that place a person at risk for suicide include stressful life events. So if a person is experiencing challenges in the workplace or if a person is chronically unemployed, uh, those are risk factors. A person experiencing financial difficulty a person with housing issues, uh, maybe unstable housing or homelessness, those are risk factors for suicide. Again, not everyone with those stressful life events will even think about suicide. In fact, most people likely will not think about suicide and certainly will not go on to attempt suicide. Talk for a bit, if you could, about the relationship between the clinical diagnosis of depression and suicide. Uh, does uh, Is this a f- true statement or not? Um, um, that, that depression is a risk factor for suicide? That's the first question. And second of all, do, do people who attempt to take their own life always have depression? Very good question. So depression is a risk factor for suicide. One of the symptoms of depression, major depressive disorder, is suicidal ideation, thoughts of death. Not everyone who's diagnosed with depression has that symptom, but many people with depression do have thoughts of death, do contemplate suicide, and in some cases do go on to attempt suicide. The majority of people who attempt suicide actually do not have a diagnosed mental health condition, a known diagnosed mental health condition. They may be struggling with mental health issues. They may be struggling with depression, and and maybe that's not known about. But actually, there are many people who attempt suicide and who die by suicide who do not have a mental health condition. Yeah, that might be surprising to people. So, so it, is that just does that mean it's a more of an impulsive act due to one of the a life event as you were bringing up earlier? It can certainly be an impulsive act. We know from research that many people who go on to attempt suicide contemplate suicide for minutes to an hour or two. Um, in some cases, individuals do contemplate suicide for for longer, uh, sometimes days or weeks. Um, but, but it's usually a shorter period. Usually of time. a short, a shorter period of time. Yeah, that. <clears throat> excuse me. That's a little bit surprising to me as well. That people are not thinking about it for months and months and months. Always, it might just be a matter of hours. And that's why it's particularly important, from my point of view, um, and I think from the point of view of those who are working in suicide prevention, to help empower the public to know what they can do to intervene when they see someone who might be in danger of acting on suicidal thoughts. Let's talk about that right now. So, so this is sort of practical steps, people, or what would you like people to know about what, how they can help? 
first I want people to know what the warning signs are. And there are a number of warning signs. I'm not going to be able to cover all of them. But some to pay, some that, that individuals listening should pay close attention to would be any kind of behaviors that point in the direction of a suicide attempt. So in some cases, individuals who are suffering start talking about death more often. They may actually be starting to talk about suicide. Uh, so that would be a very obvious warning sign. In other cases, individuals who are close to an attempt will talk about hopelessness, will talk about feeling like they're a burden. Um, they may also uh, talk about uh, wanting to end things, um, talk in, in less direct ways about suicide. There can also be erratic behavior, more reckless behavior. People might take more risks. So any kind of sign that suggests that an individual is at greater risk for harming themselves in the short term, that's what I'm wanting people to be tuned into and to know that there's some things they can do if they see this sort of thing happening in a friend or loved one. Are there... Are there certain groups of, um, you know, some that are that um, if if these behaviors happen are at a higher risk? Sometimes people think, well, this is always this is some young person, or it's a teenager's problem, or this is an old person's problem, or it's it's this group or that group. It affects all groups, doesn't it? It does affect all groups. Everyone is at risk. No one is immune. We do also know that some groups are at elevated risk. Mm -hmm. And so I'll mention some of those groups, and then I'll talk about some of the things that people can do if they identify that someone seems to be at, at risk for suicide. Okay, so I have a loved one, let's say, who is, who is doing exactly those things. Mm -hmm. What should I do? So the first thing you should do is you should ask. You should ask them if they're thinking of suicide. This may be the hardest question you could imagine asking that person. You can ask the question anyway. Uh, one of the reasons this is a hard question is that people worry that asking about suicide will put the idea of suicide in the struggling person's head. And we know from research this is actually not true. And in fact, some studies show that asking the question can actually reduce suicidal ideation, can help the person who's struggling feel more comfortable, feel more supported, feel connected. And that's a huge protective factor. So so before we go on to the second thing, I'm going to talk more, much more about this because I do this all the time. We teach it in medical school. We teach um, we, what you just said. It's not always easy, but a lot of us have become more comfortable asking people. But what about, what about people? How do you go to your spouse or your kid or your loved one, your friend, and ask that question? I think that's a really important question, and it's important to have alternative questions. Yeah, like what would you say? So I think in a case where the question about suicide is off the table for you, if you're not able to ask that question, there are still some very important questions you can ask that can help identify a person at risk. One question you can ask is, what is your pain like? Mm. Another question you can ask is, what kind of help do you need? What can I do? Uh, do you need me to help you connect to someone who can, can help you? I, I've, I've seen an ad on TV that says um, uh, that, that it discourages us from being silent. You know, there's that, um, you know, that it's just better to talk to your, just listen to people That's and see, right. uh, see if this is a good day to talk about it. That's right. I think there is, I think that's really important. So timing is really important. I think at the same time, if you're noticing, especially warning signs, if you're seeing some red flags, if alarm bells are going off, today is the day. Yeah. Now is the time to ask, yeah, even I, if it doesn't seem like a good day. Exactly. I think what an important message for everyone to hear is first thing you should do if you see some warning signs in someone that you love or is in your life is to simply ask. So do you ask the question, um, 
directly? Do you say, are you are you thinking of hurting yourself, or do you use the word suicide, or, or down to real practicality, sure. what words do you use? Sure. In my clinical practice, I use variations on the question, are you thinking of suicide? So are you thinking of ending your life? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? Those are really the most direct ways of asking in the situation where you suspect someone might be at risk for acting on suicidal thoughts. So that's the first thing you do. What next? So next, if the person tells you they are thinking of suicide, you want to establish safety. You want to make sure that the person is safe and help them stay safe. And there are a few different ways to do this. One question that might not occur to you is that you need to ask if they've already done something to end their life. It's possible you're talking with someone who's taken medication, taken an overdose, and it's really important if that person has actually already taken medication to try to end their life that you connect that person with emergency help right away. So call 911. Get the person to the emergency department. In the absence of an actual attempt, it's important to ask the person if they've had thoughts about how they might end their life. And it's important to follow up and ask, are there specific details? Have they worked out a timeline? The more detailed the person's plan is, uh, the greater the urgency for intervening. It is still an important situation to address if the person has a less specific plan, and there's still, uh, I think, uh, room to continue following through on all the steps that we'll talk about. But especially if a person has a very detailed plan, especially if a person has a timeline, um, particularly if they have access to lethal means, it is essential to work with that person to put time and distance between themselves and lethal means so that they have a greater chance of surviving and potentially um, avoid a suicide attempt. So they, so the, the more acute emergent situation is if they have thought about it, if they have a specific timeline and plan. How do, and you said, put distance between them and the lethal means. That's right. So we're talking if firearms or pills we're talking, or, yeah. say more about that. If you Absolutely. Could. We're talking firearms. We're also talking pills, medications, or other types of poisons, um, things that could work as a poison. With firearms, it's really essential to start the conversation before this moment if possible. But if this is the first time you're having this conversation, you can still have this conversation. And really the recommendation is to get the firearms out of the house, see if the person is willing to work with you, to have their firearms go with a friend or a relative, someone else who can safely store the firearms during the suicidal crisis. Um, that's what I mean by distance, and that's mm -hmm. optimal distance, having the firearms out of the home for the period of time that the person who's struggling is in danger. In some cases, that person is not willing to have their firearms leave their home, and so this is about collaboratively figuring out what is going to work, what is the, what is the greatest distance you can put between that person and their, and their chosen means. So other options include gun safes or lockboxes. And in the midst of a suicidal crisis, it's important to work out with that person that they don't have ready access to the combination. And so figuring that out, maybe having uh, maybe yourself or someone else change the combination and hold on to the combination, um, that, would be, that would be important. What I like about what you just said is that um, uh, it's working with people that maybe they, they, they're, not, they're not at a place where they're wanting to you know, remove that lethal means um, from their house, but, they, but maybe at least temporarily – Exactly. Make it put that distance between you. Have a loved one have the lock um, combination, right. and at a later time, um, that could maybe change. What you don't want to do is get into a struggle with the individual over 
what they should do. You don't want to tell the person they should get rid of their guns. When the person's telling you they're not willing to do that, you need to meet them where they're at. You need to figure out what can you do to make sure there's not an unlocked loaded gun in the home. Another option is getting the ammunition out of the home if the person's not willing to store their gun safely. Um, there are other options for storing guns as well. There are gun locks. A person might decide to lock their guns. That's relatively safe. It's not as safe as having a gun safe where the combination is not known during the suicidal crisis. And none of these other options are as safe as having the firearms out of the home. But again, we're doing what works. We're focusing on what we can do for this person to put time and distance between themselves and lethal means. So that's firearms. What about other lethal means? So for medications, there are a few different options. Um, Sometimes the person who's struggling, who's having thoughts of overdosing on medications, sometimes they're willing to let someone else manage their medication. So a loved one might take the medication, dispense it, uh, so to speak, and keep the medication locked away, um, inaccessible to the individual who's struggling. I've heard of situations where, uh, depending on the type of medication, the suicidal individual might talk with their physician about getting shorter prescriptions, maybe less medication at a time, making sure that any excess medications are disposed of safely. So if they're uh, sort of stockpiles of old medications, making sure those are not left in the cabinets in the bathroom. And what about access to medications that may be to others? I have heard, you know, as a doctor who prescribes medications, I'm much, much more cognizant of this than I was 15 years ago, of not having grandma have um, a a whole bunch of medications because your grandchildren and the teenagers come or the teenager's friend come. And so probably having a lot of medication bottles that you're not taking isn't a good idea. That's not a good idea anyway. And I would also like to point out that having unlocked and loaded guns is not a good idea anyway, that there's safe ways of storing firearms. And it's really important to be cognizant of how to safely have firearms, how to safely have medications in the home so that no one is at, at elevated risk. And you said something about maybe the have the conversation right there if it's, a, if it's a, at an acute situation, but it's maybe a good conversation to have with, with people earlier. I would encourage if you haven't had this conversation with a loved one and you have thoughts about this, um, or even if you haven't thought about it until right now, I would encourage you to think about starting that conversation um, at this point, even if the individual doesn't have any apparent suicide risk factors, even if there are no warning signs. These are conversations that we all should be having. So you talked about step one is to ask um, if people are thinking about it. Number two, do they have a plan in specific timelines? What if the answer is no? I don't really right now have a plan, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah, In that case, you could double check, make sure there aren't excess medications or uh, firearms stored unsafely. And then you can move on to step three, which is being there. So this is not just about asking a question and doing some work and then walking away. This is about being there with the individual, continuing to be with them during the suicidal crisis and beyond. And one of the really important things about being there is that we know that connectedness is a very strong protective factor. Uh, So even a person at higher risk for suicide, if they feel connected, if they feel supported by other people, if they feel like they belong to groups, if they feel uh, like other people care for them, they're going to be less likely to act on suicidal thoughts. So being there is so essential. And figuring out, too, how can other people be there for this person? So this is not your job alone. This is also about engaging the rest of the support network or helping the individual get connected to help, uh, professional help, uh, or maybe speaking with clergy, someone else they can talk about their struggles with.
We're going to keep, we're talking to Dr. Brent Walden about um, suicide prevention. Um, if you wish to join the conversation, we are here to talk to you as well. We are, uh, we're not done, um, but I just wanted to alert listeners that you too can join the conversation as some texters have already done. You can call us or send a text, same number applies, 651-989-9226. Again, 651-989-9226. You're listening to a special edition of Healthy Matters, continuing with our special I'm Listening. Here again is Dr. Hilden. Thank you, Denny. So we do have a texter that's talking about teenagers and so um, about talking with teenagers. Um, This person says that I had the opportunity to discuss it with my kids when they were younger. Um, This texter goes on to talk about, um, remember, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But how do you talk to kids? I think that's a great question. I first want to commend the texter for talking with kids, talking with their kids about this. This is so important. Um, So I want to reinforce that and encourage others to do that. As an adult psychologist, adult clinical psychologist, I would actually consult with one of my child psychologist colleagues to find out the best answer to this question. But I do know the conversation will vary depending on the age and developmental stage of that of that individual child. Um, and I would encourage consultation with a child psychologist if, if the parent is unsure how to proceed with that conversation. What if you don't have any concerns? Just general parenting. You know, you have to have, in quotation marks, the talk with your kid about Everything about about school, about, you know, sexual health, about but we don't often talk, you know, about don't smoke kid and, you know, mom or dad's going to be mad. What about how do you talk to kids about about their mental health and to and to make sure that that you ask these questions of them, even if you don't really have concerns or, or at least make the home an atmosphere where they can feel safe in talking to you? I think there's so much importance in the latter, especially just creating an environment where the child or adolescent can come to you, making sure that you've made a path. Even if you're not asking the specific question about whether the the child or adolescent is having thoughts of suicide because you haven't seen warning signs and you're not aware of risk factors, making it okay to talk about this, um, approaching this subject and, and other subjects in non-judgmental in a non-judgmental way is really critical to making it okay for, for kids and adolescents to talk to parents. I think also making sure kids and adolescents are aware that help is available, that in the future, if they were to experience a struggle, if they were to be in a crisis, that there are places they can go, people they can call, people they can text actually for help. There are two resources I want to make sure to, to plug on the show. This is uh, Do it right now, and the, then we can do it later absolutely. as well. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-273-TALK. That number is 1-800-273-8255. And that number is a resource not only for individuals who are struggling with suicidal ideation or thinking about suicide or planning to, to die by suicide, but also available to any loved one, friend, other person who's concerned about another individual. So the Lifeline is such a great resource. So again, 24-7. 24-7, free and confidential, 1-800-273-8255. I encourage people I work with to actually put that number in their phones if they have a cell phone so they can go to it right away. There are a number of folks who are more comfortable with texting, and there's some contexts, some situations where texting is actually a better option or it works better for that individual. And I want to also talk about the crisis text line. So in Minnesota, you can text the letters MN for Minnesota, so MN to 741-741 and receive the same sort of free and confidential 
support, and help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I um, I have heard uh, that if you simply Google the word suicide, you maybe you're struggling or, um, and you Google that word that the National Suicide Prevention Line comes up. And I just did it 20 seconds ago, and that is the case. So that number is, again, 800-273-TALK, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And say again the Minnesota text line. So the Minnesota text line, MN to 741741. Outside of Minnesota, and you actually text those six digits. Text those six digits. It's oh, kind of you text MN. You text MN to those six digits. Yeah. That's right. And it feel it can feel a little strange if you're not used to texting to a number that's less than seven digits, but that's the way it works. And actually, within Minnesota, announcing the word home H O M E to the same number seven four one seven four one will also work. Very good resources. So you, we talked about step one. Ask step two is ask if um, see if they person has a plan. Step three is being there. I want to expand on that a little bit more. That's hard for people to do. If someone really is um, in a bad way, and we're not, you know, you're maybe not a trained psychologist, and what do I do? What do I say? What does being there mean? That's really a good question. And in so many cases, we feel like we have to say something. And sometimes saying something is what's needed. Sometimes expressing support, expressing uh, support despite the situation being difficult. Um, that's really critical. And other times being there can be being there without words, being there in the room with the person, allowing the person to have time and space with another individual. So this doesn't have to be a conversation that flows like every other conversation you're used to having. This could be a conversation that has a lot of silence. And that's okay because there can be a lot of support in that silence. Good point. Um, because I think people have said to me, I don't know what to say. I'm not a psychologist. That's where you come in. Um, but but you can um, just be in present. What's the next step? So the next step is connecting to help. So help them connect to, in a lot of cases, a mental health professional. That's what we would recommend. In some cases, the individual won't be willing to meet with a mental health professional. And so speaking with a physician, speaking with someone else who has the ability to do a more thorough assessment and figure out what kind of help is needed, what what will help in the longer run in terms of providing support? So many people, um, this stage seems a little bit hard to me. It's like, okay, I don't know where to be go. I don't know where to get help. I don't know where how to get a psychologist. Who do I call? The waits are long. What's the best? You know, and nine one one is what you call when things are are real are 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 in um, you know, an acute situation. But a lot of people ask me, where do I find someone? Do they just go to their insurance company's book, or how do they find somebody? In a lot of cases, folks do find a, a provider, either a psychotherapy provider or a psychiatric medication provider through their insurance provider. In other cases, uh, there are resources online such as psychologytoday.com, which includes a listing of many of the psychotherapy providers, um, in the area, and so uh, that would provide information for the individual as well. It seems to me to be a sort of a relationship that you want to go well with your psychotherapist. That's right. A- and so, as one yourself, do you um, do you often um, or do you ever tell people, you know, I recommend, you know, maybe this, I'm, maybe I'm not exactly the right person for you. One of my colleagues is, or does. Uh, how does that work? Absolutely. So, it, particularly if I have a sense that the person doesn't feel connected or isn't really talking about what I think they might need to talk about. I'll have a conversation with them about this possibly not being the right match, that they could certainly consult with a colleague of mine, that what I want for them is not for them to continue seeing me if that's not working, but actually I want them to see someone they can open up to who they can connect with and get helped by. 
Um, and in some cases, at the beginning of psychotherapy, when I'm starting off with someone uh, talking about what psychotherapy is, providing education, I let them know right off the bat that they may actually not connect with me. And it's okay to talk with me about that. It's okay for them to go find a different psychotherapy provider. Sometimes individuals have to meet with a few potential providers before they settle in with someone they feel comfortable with. Could you talk a little bit about, um, I'm talking mostly, I guess, about depression here and not specifically suicide, but the role of psychotherapy vis-a-vis medications. Um, Are are they equivalent? Is one better than the other? When should you consider um, medications, antidepressants and the like, versus talk therapy? They're probably going to be uh, somewhat different answers depending on who you ask um, in terms of psychologists or other um, psychotherapy providers. My recommendation to individuals who have a diagnosis of depression or any other mental health diagnosis is to at least consult with a psychiatrist or psychiatric provider to see if medication might also be a good option for them. Uh, We see that individuals who have both psychotherapy and medication Uh, tend to do really well. Sometimes people can do well with psychotherapy alone or medication alone. But since I don't know what's going to work for this individual sitting in front of me, I want them to have the best shot at recovery, and I want them to have all the resources available to them. So I do encourage folks to consult with a psychiatrist if they're open to that. Thank you. Um, uh, My pattern has been to tell my patients uh, I, I think the combination might be something they want to consider. Um, the thing I have a little more challenges is trying to help them get into psychotherapy because I think it. Um, I think the evidence, as far as I know, from a non-psychiatrist perspective, is that it is for many people as effective, if not more, than something uh, an antidepressant from a bottle. It can be, and it can actually uh, be associated with more sustained changes over time. So, if you stop taking a medication that helps with depression, you may experience a relapse. Uh, you're probably more likely to have uh, longer remission from depression, uh, going with depression as an example. Uh, If you have psychotherapy where you've learned skills and strategies for managing depression, uh, that might show up in the future. I want to go to the text line. We're talking about things you can do to help um, the loved ones in your life. Um, One of the text lines says, how does substance abuse factor into suicide? Substance abuse is both a risk factor and a warning sign if there's a change with substance use. So if a person has an alcohol use disorder or a drug use disorder, that is one of the risk factors. Again, most people with alcohol use disorder, drug use disorder, will not go on to attempt suicide, but it does elevate risk. If there's a change in alcohol and or drug use, if a person is escalating their substance use specifically, that is a potentially a warning sign that that individual is heading towards a suicide attempt, particularly in combination with other warning signs. So is that um, that's a little bit harder to um, identify sometimes for people. Like, how do I know if someone's um, using more? It can be, and I think the the idea of asking uh, applies not only to suicide but also checking in about substance use. Uh, this is a hard question to ask, and in some cases, individuals who are struggling may not feel ready to open up about their substance use, but approaching it in as open and non-judgmental a way as possible will create a path uh, that that person might choose to go down. And I think in addition, uh, healthcare professionals have a role to play checking in regularly about substance use and, and talking about other factors that, that are important to check in about. Suicide sometimes happens, you know, for people who are currently using, you know, they're intoxicated on, on some substance, alcohol or some other drug. Is there, are there any 
interventions to, to, to help in that very situation? Um, how do you intervene? I think in that very situation, if we have concern that a person is altered, if they're um, under the influence of alcohol or, or a drug, it would be really important to have them go to the hospital to be evaluated um, since there's not a way for, I think, most individuals to be able to reliably keep that person safe on their own. That's, I think, too, too tall and uh, on too high a shelf for, for most people. And so bringing the professionals in is really the, the important thing to do at that point. So we've talked about asking a plan, um, asking people, see if there's a plan, being present and connecting them to help. Is there anything else people can do? Following up is essential. So making sure you are checking in, making sure you are continuing to connect. If you need to back away for whatever reason, and you can do that, but you need to kind of continue to check in with the person, make sure that person is connected to other individuals as well. Um, and so following up it can be easy to forget about when the crisis is, is passed. Uh, checking in even by sending a text uh, or leaving a message on the phone to let the person know you're thinking about them. You hope they're well, and and that if you're willing to to have them check in with you, if that's if that's something you can can do for them, then making that offer explicit would be really important. That sounds really important to me, and I bet you it's something that is really easy to forget to do. It is, especially since people are so busy and have other things to focus on as well. But so important, such an essential step, since we know that connectedness is such a strong protective factor. We want to make sure connectedness continues over time. Along that lines, what about the um, – it happens uh, – or I encounter people um, who are grieving, um, bere- you know, in the bereavement process. Maybe somebody lost their spouse and, and are feeling a loss of connectedness at that time. Any thoughts on that, that situation? Yeah, that is, that is such a critical period and such a, a time when people feel so isolated, um, particularly when they've lost the person they've spent most of their time with. And that is a time when, when the individual may be at higher risk for thinking about suicide. Um, and so it's important to help that person connect with others, uh, to make it okay for that person to talk about the person they've lost, um, even if that may be difficult to, to do, even if this is an individual you yourself have lost, thinking in terms of a family. Those, those discussions can be really difficult since everyone does grieve in their own way. And for some people, focusing on other things is, is the way they are they're managing that. But making it okay to talk about grief is important. Yeah, I think that um, because grief is a normal process. Absolutely, absolutely. But suicide is a not. Um, that is, a, you know, and so it's hard for, um, uh, so for people to know, you know, how long am I supposed to be sad? How long am I supposed to remember my loved one? Well, you're probably going to, that could go on forever. But right. when does that normal grief and bereavement process become something that needs some help? So, when normal grief and bereavement becomes something more like a major depressive episode, a clinical depression, in other words, that would be when treatment would be needed for that individual. And I'd like to also say that one of the more challenging griefs to navigate would be grief uh, over someone who dies by suicide. And so there's a lot of attention to suicide loss survivors, making sure those individuals have the opportunity to talk about their loss or maybe for a period of time to not talk about their loss, but be with other people who can be supportive, perhaps join a support group to talk with others who've lost individuals to suicide. Any advice on where they would find such a group? I would encourage Googling um, or otherwise doing an Internet search uh, on suicide uh, loss support groups. 
Um, so the, you're talking about the surviving loved one survive- from, from, some, from someone who has ended their life. Exactly, exactly. One place you can go to, to look for resources, too, is the uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline website. Um, there is a section for suicide loss survivors that provides some tips and strategies for managing uh, this incredibly difficult period and for connecting to support, uh, both online and support groups. Someone on the text line here is getting at sort of a risk factor. They want to know if there is a genetic uh, predisposition to it. Now, that's my paraphrase of it. They're mm-hmm. asking, is mm-hmm. there a suicide gene? I don't know of such a gene. And I think anytime we are kind of thinking about the genetic influence on any kind of mental health condition or a behavior, uh, we really want to be focused more on the fact that this condition exists and can be um, we can help prevent suicide. Everyone can help prevent suicide, even if there is a gene that predisposes individuals. Um, I don't know of such a gene, as I said. Um, there are I don't genetic, think any of us do. Yeah, there are genetic factors, certainly, that influence certain risk factors for suicide, such as depression, bipolar disorder. But we're very much more focused on prevention and making sure the public are aware of the, um, the warning signs in particular and then the steps to follow if they do see someone who's at elevated risk. So in case you're just joining us, we're doing the I'm Listening uh, um, national conversation about suicide prevention. I think the key word in that is prevention. I have Dr. Brent Walden with us. He is the chief clinical psychologist at Hennepin Healthcare, where I work. We, uh, we've decided on to dedicate the entire hour of our Healthy Matters program this morning to uh, this um, really important topic, and I'm just I'm really glad that we're doing that and that this conversation is happening around the whole country. If you wish to join us, you may do so. And a couple of ways to do that, as usual, you can call in your question or send a text. Uh, same number applies, 651-989-9226. Again, 651-989-9226. Here again is Dr. Hilden. So um, part of the national conversation I've heard is about some specific populations. And if we could talk about that for a moment, service members, uh, people who have extraordinarily traumatic jobs, some firefighters, some police officers, service members, people who have some type of PTSD from any any reason. Could you address that, that those populations? Sure. I, I can certainly affirm that those populations uh, may be at higher risk. And with, with Minnesota in particular, there's some populations for us to be aware of as well. Um, this may be surprising, but young people as young as 10 up to age 24 are at elevated risk in Minnesota. Um, Why do you say in Minnesota? Well, this is based on Information I received or um, obtained from the Minnesota Department of Health website. And so I'm speaking to Minnesota, uh, to the Minnesota data that I've reviewed. Um, this is pr- certainly the case nationwide as well. So uh, particularly children uh, age 15 uh, on up to young adults age 24 are at elevated risk. Um, in addition, in Minnesota and nationwide, there uh, is elevated risk for middle-aged white men um, as well as individuals living in greater Minnesota. We know that the suicide rate is actually higher in greater Minnesota than in the seven-county metro area. The American Indian community is also disproportionately affected, and so they have a, a high rate of suicide in Minnesota, particularly compared to the rest of the nation, uh, looking at the American Indian uh, community across the United States. There's a lot to unpack there, but I want to hit on um, greater Minnesota. What about professional resources that might not be as readily available to somebody who's living 
um, in a smaller community or even outside those smaller communities in less populous counties of our state and in the upper Midwest. You know, I, I, we're in downtown Minneapolis. We're across the you know, street from U.S. Bank Stadium. There's, a, there's hospitals every other block around here. What about people in greater Minnesota, many of whom are listening right now? It well, can, it, advice for them? Absolutely. It can be challenging to find a mental health professional in some of our more rural areas in greater Minnesota. Um, there are resources, and it may be harder to, to get to those resources. Uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, I would say, is also a resource. So it's, it's not only a crisis line, but it's a, a number to use if you have questions about suicide prevention, if you have questions about getting help for someone or for yourself, even if you're not in a situation where you're thinking about ending your life, even if you're not concerned about warning, warning signs in another individual, you can call and say, here's the situation. I live in a rural area. I don't know where the resources are, and I have not been able to find anyone who can help me with that. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline would be a resource to at least get the ball rolling. And to remind listeners who may be just joining us, that number is? 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. That's available from anywhere in the country. Um, that's good advice. Um, uh, you also mentioned Native American people. I, I, I see a, a number of Native people in, in my practice, as I'm sure you do too. There's cultural issues as well. And, and I, um, I've talked to some uh, uh, um, uh, people from various um, um, tribes in the upper Midwest and, and struggling to find uh, mental health resources that for people who are, who are not like me. I'm a middle-aged white guy. And and I, although I do my best, that population also, um, our Native brothers and sisters, don't have um, as uh, often as, as readily available resources. That's right. Some of the work we're doing is to be as culturally informed and culturally sensitive as possible in the delivery of mental health services. And so figuring out how can we make our treatment as effective as possible for all individuals, including Native American individuals uh, and others. What about – this is not what I, I – just a little quick thing about advocacy for mental health resources. <laughs> uh, our health care system historically hasn't always included mental health at the same – to the level it ought to be. And so you get stigmas associated with it. And we don't – and insurance plans exclude mental health historically. Um, I would just like to make a plug for all of us. Yeah to advocate to our elected leaders, to, our, to anybody about making mental health, um, uh, to, to dedicating the resources to it that, it that it should have. I appreciate that. I second that as well. Yeah, you know, it, it, we have to quit excluding mental health and, um, from insurance plans, having to be a part of our basic, basic um, health care coverage. And uh, because uh, that's, a, I think, a, a bygone era when, when uh, mental health was treated as something differently. Um, we are talking to Dr. Brent Walden, the chief psychologist at um, Hennepin Healthcare, about suicide prevention. Um, at the very beginning of the show, you talked about warning signs. I'd like to revisit that with people. So could you, again, for listeners who might be just joining us, what are some of the warning signs? Because this, this along with those steps that you can take, is the most important thing I think we're talking about. That's exact, exactly right. So warning signs can be very obviously linked to suicide or the risk for suicide, So, such as an individual talking about suicide or talking about wanting to die, the individual might be making preparations to die. Uh, they might be giving away valued possessions. They might be um, 
working on final um, arrangements, uh, putting together a will, and that may be happening at a time when, when it seems confusing to other people. It's probably never a bad idea to put together a will, and it can happen in the midst of someone experiencing a crisis, and that would be a warning sign. Um, other less obvious warning signs, but warning signs to pay attention to, are uh, intensification of mental health symptoms, an individual exhibiting significant rage, uh, maybe making threats against other people as well, reckless behavior. Um, so these are warning signs that would tell us that a person needs help. They would uh, be when alarm bells should go off for you, and that's when you should ask and then follow up. Let's run through the steps that people should do, starting with ask. Starting with ask. And the best way to do this is to ask very directly, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about dying? Are you thinking about killing yourself? There are other questions you can ask if those questions uh, feel too difficult. So you can ask, what is your pain like? What kind of help do you need? Any kind of question that can open a conversation that might ultimately lead to that person acknowledging suicidal behavior or, or giving you the chance to ask about suicidal thoughts if, you're, if, if you get work up to a point where you feel more comfortable. And you will not put the idea in their head. That's exactly right. Research has shown that asking the question does not increase a, a person's risk for suicide. It actually may decrease the person's risk for suicide. Um, so asking the question does not put the idea in their head. You've asked. What's the next step? So after asking, you want to make sure they are safe. So make sure they haven't done anything yet. Uh, to try to end their life like overdosing on pills just before you're speaking with them. If that's the case, you need to get them to the hospital right away, call 911, get them to an emergency department. 911 is appropriate to call in that situation. Absolutely. Let's make that crystal clear to people. Absolutely. If the person has not done anything to harm themselves yet, then it's important to ask the person if they have thoughts about how they would end their life. Do they have a plan? And you want to get as specific as you can. You want to find out what details they have worked out. How far along are they in planning? Um, if the individual has a very specific plan and a short timeline and they have access to lethal means such as firearms or a large amount of medication, um, you need to intervene at that point. And so that would also be a point where you want to involve the authorities, um, call 911, get the person to the emergency department. And you want to work on reducing access to lethal means to the extent possible. And this is usually possible. So I want to encourage people to have these difficult conversations about removing firearms temporarily, maybe having a person who's thinking about death by suicide, uh, particularly if they're planning to use a firearm, have them, uh, if they're willing, to uh, give their firearms to a friend or a relative who can safely watch those firearms until the suicidal crisis has passed. And there are other ways to put dis time and distance between a suicidal individual and firearms, such as gun safes, such as lockboxes, uh, gun locks. They're not as secure as removing guns from the home entirely, temporarily, during the suicidal crisis. Uh, but they may be what the suicidal person is actually willing to do, and that's what counts. What's the next step? So the next step after making sure the person is safe is being there. And being there can involve a conversation. And being there can also involve just that, just being there. Um, maybe there's some silence. Maybe you're just sitting with the individual for a period of time. But making sure you're connecting with that person, checking in with them, communicating your support to that person, uh, that, is, that is really important. And after being there, uh, you actually want to continue to be there, but after the being there step is the, the following step of connecting them to help, making sure that that individual is connecting to a mental health professional, uh, to primary care physician, 
anyone who is in a professional position where they can do a more thorough assessment and figure out what additional steps are needed. That's also a time, and I didn't mention this earlier, that's also a time when the person who is experiencing suicidal thoughts can put together what we call a safety plan. And the safety plan is a document that person puts together in collaboration with another person, usually a professional, uh, that includes signs that, the, that things are not going well, uh, warning signs that that individual can recognize sooner uh, rather than later. And in response to those warning signs, the person will write down specific activities they can do to distract themselves temporarily to get through the crisis, people they can connect with, places they can go that are safe. That It can also involve a reminder of that person's reason for living. That's really important. In addition, you can have a list of names and phone numbers so that person can connect with other people. Safety plans also include a reminder of professionals that person has worked with and can connect with. And then emergency resources like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the National Crisis Text Line. When someone needs to be hospitalized, what is done? I mean, this has been asked of me before. And um, so... What do you do um, when someone needs what, – what, what, is, what is done when someone sure. needs to be hospitalized? So first of all, there's a very thorough assessment of that person's level of risk and their need at that time to figure out if a hospitalization is necessary. When possible, we don't hospitalize. Uh, this is one of the reasons the partial hospital program that I work in exists, is to help prevent a hospitalization when possible, when it's safe to do that person may be experiencing a crisis but able to stay safe outside the hospital. But a hospitalization is sometimes needed. Um, And while it's disruptive and while people typically don't want to come into the hospital, it's sometimes life-saving. And it's actually a really important step in a person's recovery, sometimes the first step they've taken. Um, And so I want to be really clear that a hospitalization can actually be really helpful. What is so you mentioned and I and I wanted to come back to it so I'm I'm thankful that you brought it up. What is a partial hospitalization program? So the partial hospital program is about the most intensive outpatient treatment a person can get. So our partial hospital program at Hennepin Healthcare is set up for individuals to attend all day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Our programming is group based. And we have psychotherapy group. We have education groups teaching skills and strategies for managing symptoms and life problems. We also have occupational therapy, therapeutic recreation, and groups that are focused on helping people set goals and then keep track of their progress toward their goals. As part of our psychiatric partial hospital program, we also have a psychiatrist. And our psychiatrist provides evaluation and management services sometimes multiple days per week for individuals. Now, this is, this is more frequent than typically a person would see a psychiatrist. And so sometimes medication changes are made. Our psychiatrist also does individual psychotherapy with individuals in the program. Is that different than day treatment? It is different than day treatment. The partial hospital program is more intensive in that it's all-day programming, five days a week, and it lasts for only 15 or 16 days. Day treatment is a a less intensive but still intensive mental health treatment program that lasts um, two to six months, and programming is on four days a week um, and for three hours a day. Similar type of programming with psychotherapy groups, education groups, and occupational therapy groups. Um, It's not unusual for an individual to um, be discharged from the hospital or come to partial um, instead of hospitalization, complete the program, and then go to day treatment as a step down. So there's still some intensive programming, still some good structure, which we know the structure itself can be really healing, can promote recovery, and also the interactions with other participants in the program. I've seen that be really powerful as well. 
How does one get into these programs? So there are multiple partial hospital programs in the Twin Cities, uh, day treatment programs as well. At Hennepin Healthcare, our referrals tend to come from psychiatry areas, uh, sometimes outside psychiatry. We sometimes get referrals for the partial program from our acute psychiatric services, which is our psychiatric emergency room right next to the emergency department. Uh, We also get referrals from the community. So we have community providers who know about our partial hospital program and make referrals. Referrals are needed for the partial hospital program, and we do need to check to make sure insurance covers. But by and large, insurance tends to cover. Sometimes a prior authorization is needed. And so partial hospitalization is a great option for individuals experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, We have immediate openings in our partial hospital program. I know there are other partial hospital programs in the area as well. So... Let's talk just a little bit more about your, we're running out of time, so a little bit more about your program. How many psychologists do you employ? You're the chief of all of them. How big is your department? That's right. We have about 40 psychologists across Hennepin Healthcare, across the healthcare system. We have psychologists working in, one psychologist working in inpatient psychiatry, uh, primarily running groups with individuals who are on our inpatient psychiatry unit. We have psychologists throughout the outpatient psychiatry areas as well. Um, we also have psychologists in our primary care clinics and in, in most of our community clinics as well. That was one of the best developments in primary care. I'm a really big fan of primary care behavioral health as well. Uh, we also get referrals, by the way, to the partial hospital program from PCBH. So do you, you said you have some openings. Let's, let's say some people are listening and don't know where to turn yet. Can they, can they get in to see somebody in your department? I would say if a person is interested in coming to the partial hospital program in particular, the next step would be calling and asking if we're able to work with them based on insurance. So there's always that question, and insurance can be complicated, but we can help simplify that by uh, helping you figure out how to get an answer to the insurance question. So calling, um, and if I could give the phone number for the partial hospital program, I wish you would. That'd be great. 612-873-2212. Again, 612-873-2212. That's the phone number for our psychiatry partial hospital program. Access to other psychiatry areas is a little more complex. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say if you are receiving primary care services at Hennepin and you need to talk with a psychologist, simply talk with your primary care physician. Given given the demand for our services and the, the limited resources we have, uh, we're not able to, we don't have our psychiatry, all of our outpatient psychiatry areas open to outside referrals at this time, uh, but there's certainly other resources in the in the community. We've been talking to Dr. Brent Walden. He is the chief clinical psychologist at my place, Hennepin Healthcare. We are running out of time, but we have, um, I think that was incredibly important and accessible information for people. It's been great having you on the show. Again, I'm going to give the the line, the the National Suicide Prevention Line again. It's 1-800-273-TALK. That's available to anyone who is listening, 1-800-273-TALK. Um, we, I do want to just a couple of housekeeping um, items before we go. It's not too late to sign up for the free men's health seminar. It's in two days. It's this Tuesday, September 10th. It'll be, um, it's for you men. For, um, it's about urinary incontinence, erectile issues, all this kind of stuff you don't want to talk about in polite company. But we're a polite company and you can talk about it. 6 to 7 p.m. at Hennepin Healthcare. It's at the Whittier Clinic at 2810 Nicollet Avenue South. Dr. Travis Pagliara, a health, uh, Hennepin Healthcare urologist and men's health specialist, will be there. If you're interested, go now to hennepinhealthcare.org slash here for health to sign up. And we'll be back again uh, next week, uh, new time, 7 a.m. 
here on News Talk 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 